Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, him, Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Okay, so this is the third Sunday in Lent, and I want to ask you a question, given all that's going on in our world right now. How is your anxiety level these days? Um, Lent is a season where we're invited to stop engaging in mindless activities and in numbing behaviors so that we can return to God with all of our heart. Uh, But man, I have been pretty consumed, I think, with Um, checking the news and CNN and Fox News and NPR uh, moment by moment almost to get a sense of what's happening in our world. And I think uh, the anxiety levels can be really, really spiking uh, for all of us. And we have a sense of not knowing what's next. We have a sense of, uh, and we even even in how we respond, right, to the coronavirus, COVID-19, there can be a sense of we are um, polarized against each other, even in how we respond. Um, in the pastoral world, there was sort of a back and forth and a judgment back and forth if you were going to hold your worship services or not. Uh, so it's really, really polarized. And the anxiety level, I just want to say, can be really, really high. So before we get into the text this morning, which is delicious, let me tell you. Um, uh, I want to ask you this question, um, in light of the anxiety that's sort of spiking all around us, uh, what are the spiritual practices that you're engaging in that are going to help you return to God with all your heart? And so one of the things that I've been trying to do most mornings is get up a little early and I've been trying to just sit in silence for about 10 minutes and meditate. And by meditating, I simply mean breathing in and breathing out. And every time... Uh, my mind goes to worry or my mind goes to something that I'm going to do that day or something other than my breath. I just return to my breath. And I've even been lately uh, using a mantra. Um, and, and that mantra is, um, I am in God and God is in me. And you can use that mantra on the in-breath and on the out-breath. And what, what meditation does in helping us just return to that is in that moment, you're going to find yourself scatterbrained, going all over the place. Your mind is going to be wandering. And every time you wander, you just gently bring it back to your breath. You can feel like you're kind of failing in that. I do anyway. But really what it is, is like training you that throughout the day, as you find yourself wandering and anxious and worrying, you can in the same way, more naturally, the more you meditate than during your normal, natural, ordinary day, even even at work or even with the kids or even by yourself, when you catch yourself worrying, you you can return to that breath. I am in God, God is in me and it can calm you. Uh, So maybe meditation is one. Maybe getting outside for a walk. I think that's one of the things that I've been, even just a few days into this, I've been noticing the the desire and need to get outside um, and to experience some fresh air. And um, I think that can be a good spiritual practice. Maybe limiting some of the use of social media during this time, because I think it only increases anxiety. 
maybe getting together, uh, practicing certain, you know, washing your hands and being real careful, but getting together with people that you love. Um, and also using this practicing social distancing and washing your hands as a spiritual discipline, a Lenten discipline of entering into solidarity with people, right, who, um, who aren't in the same place as you are, who you don't even know. This is a way to love God and love people every time you wash your hands, every time you practice social distancing, every time you start to feel like you're going a little crazy because of it. This, the, these can be your Lent and your new Lenten disciplines of, of solidarity and love with God, with people, and with your own soul. Okay, so um, let's get into the text, shall we? It's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. The Samaritan woman, Jesus, um, what he says to her is paradoxical. He uses metaphor and paradox again, just like last week with Nicodemus. Um, and I've been wondering how we do all plays. And here's the thing, like I thought I was going to be able to read the, the comments as they scroll up, but it's not scrolling up. And so I think it'd be really super awkward um, to sort of read it. So what I want you to do is you can do all plays with each other. Like you can see the comments. So I want you to put your comments in there. I'd like you to put your questions in there even. I really can't see them and stay engaged in what I'm trying to do here, but you can, and you can go back and forth. And I think that'll be really fun. So I'll actually, I'll actually shout out the all play questions, but I just won't be able to read them and interact with them real time. Okay, so normally I would be able to, um, but here we go. So Jesus is uh, traveling from Judea up north to Galilee, and he's doing so because uh, the religious leaders of the time have found out or have heard the rumor that he's baptizing more people than John. And then it's, there's this parenthetical note. It's a rumor because actually Jesus isn't the one doing the baptizing. It's his disciples, but whatever. And he's getting nervous, we can infer, that he might be arrested before his time. So what he does is he goes back north to Galilee to get a little space from the, the, the center of religious activity, which is in Judea. And <clears throat> many Jews would not pass through Samaria. So you have to go through Samaria. That's the most direct line from Judea to Galilee. But, and many Jews wouldn't even want to walk through because they don't want to, they don't want to, um, they want to interface with Samaritans. They sort of feel like Samaritans are sort of like in the Harry Potter novels, what Draco Malfoy might say, mudbloods, you know, <laughs> like um, that would be the way many, many Jewish people thought of Samaritans in, in the time. They were mixed breed. They also had a mixed kind of religion that wasn't pure. And so, um, so but Jesus, interestingly, goes right through Samaria and he stops in a little town called Sychar. And um, so I look up, <laughs> I looked up what this word means, and the Greek word is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, and it means drunk. <laughs> so how would it be like to live in a town called drunk? <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love that. Anyway, and, and what does it mean that Jesus, is, Jesus stops there? I don't know. It says the disciples went into town to get um, <laughs> to get food, to buy food. Who knows? Maybe they also went into town to get some strong drink. Who knows? Um, maybe Sikhar was a popular spring break site in <laughs> the early first century. We don't know. Um, but here's the story. I want to read it again, starting verse 7. I'll just read a few verses, but 
Jesus runs in, Jesus sits down at Jacob's well, this very famous site that now is considered holy from uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, in starting verse seven, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Remember Jesus was sitting there cause he was tired cause he had walked all the way from Judea uh, heading toward um, Galilee. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to a city to buy food and or strong drink. Um, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him, meaning me, Jesus says, and he would have given you living water. So here's the first all play question for you to wrestle with together, okay? What do you see emerging in the beginning of this conversation between Jesus and the unnamed Samaritan woman? What do you see emerging? And I think just like last week with the story about Nicodemus, one of the big challenges for those of us who've maybe heard this story a bunch of times is to get past our preconceived notions about what's happening here, is to be in the moment in the story, be in the beginning of the story as Jesus sees this woman, like picture it in your mind as Jesus sees this woman coming toward him. And, and then she sees him sitting there, like what must have been going through both of their minds, right? But he doesn't leave and she doesn't stop coming. She comes all the way to the well, he doesn't leave, he sits there. And then he engages her in conversation. What do you see emerging? Like what, what questions would you have uh, for the original storyteller if you could ask those kinds of questions? Some of the questions that I would have is like, why, like, I, I, it seems like the woman may, may have like, why did she keep going? Like that feels audacious to me. Like I wanna know more about her. Like why, of course she needed water, so maybe that's the answer, but I think there's even something more there. And then I think it's so easy to get caught up, like, like think about this woman. She's just doing what she does every single day. This is probably the 75th chore that she's done this day. Maybe there's kids at home, maybe there's food that she's already made for the morning meal, for the midday meal, maybe she's gotten ready for the evening meal, maybe she's taking care of her parents. Uh, and one of her jobs is to go down to uh, the well and get some water. So in the middle of the busyness and the ordinariness of your ordinary day, the mundaneness and just the flow of normal life, it's so easy, right? It's so easy for that routine, driving to work, getting your coffee, stopping by Caribou, checking your email, um, responding to your supervisor, uh, getting a text from your kids, getting a test from your roommate, solving a problem, all these different things that seem so mundane. Um, those, that flow of life can keep you skimming on top of the surface of your life so that you'll never quite dip into the depths where maybe there's a sense of loneliness in your life. Maybe there's a sense that life isn't all that it should be, but, but staying in the flow of life in your mundane duties, getting water, um, makes you even not able to recognize interruptions that could come that invite you to stop and then plunge a little deeper 
to meet God where God can be found, which I think is when we stop long enough to let things like settle down in the depths of where God is. Um, this mystic, modern mystic named Jim Finley has said this thing to me. I've been listening to one of the podcasts that he's been doing called Turning to the Mystics. It's put out by the Center for Action and Contemplation, where Richard Rohr does his stuff. And he said this uh, at least once in every episode of his podcast. He said this, that which is essential is never going to like burst in on you. That which is essential is never going to impose itself. But that which is non-essential is always imposing itself. So what does it mean in the middle of your mundane life when you're getting the water, filling up your car for gas, dropping your kid off at school, answering the 50th email for that day, getting ready for dinner, cleaning the house, resolving a conflict. What does it mean to keep your eyes open for an interruption that might take you down into the depths where God might be found? Because I think if we're lucky, something or someone will surprise us and interrupt us, um, interrupt that momentum in such a way that we're invited to slow down and pay attention to what's brewing beneath the surface, which is where God longs to meet with us, right? Uh, it might be a sunset. Um, it might be a few days ago. Uh, for me, it was uh, my dog was, we have this dog. She's nine months old, a puppy still. And she was barking like crazy early in the morning. So I was getting nervous because I didn't want her to wake up people. She was barking, barking, barking. So finally I went out to the deck to check it out. And she saw what was out there in the backyard were six deer. And she was barking at those deer. And I noticed it. I was like, oh. And so I said to one of my sons, hey, get, get over here and check out. There's these deer. And all of a sudden, what was getting ready for the day, getting breakfast on the table, unloading the dishwasher, turned into this interruption where I could stop and see something that was inviting me deeper. And it was magical. Um, maybe a good question can do that too. You ever had that where someone's good question, someone like you, you maybe you're just saying something and you're and you're you're just saying a lot of things, and then a good question makes you stop and pay attention to what you just said on the feeling level. You know what I mean by that? Like, oh my. I just, I almost skimmed over what I just said and it was really intense, but someone had the, had the attentiveness and the attunement to stop and say like, oh my goodness, like, did you hear what you just said? What does that even mean? I want to hear more about that. And I think that's what Jesus is doing for this Samaritan woman. And I think here's, here's how you got to climb out of what you've always thought about this story. I think that his presence at the well was a really good interruption in her mundane uh, life activity. And I think it really obviously um, led to, if you read the rest of the story, it led to something beautiful. But I also think that her presence, think about this, her presence with him interrupted his mundane. I mean, he was traveling from Judea to Galilee, he was tired probably hungry. The disciples, he was alone. The disciples went off to get some food. He's sitting there. He's thirsty. He's hungry. 
maybe he's irritable. You know, he was a human being. So, and maybe, you know, many times the disciples were <laughs> kind of idiots. <laughs> and maybe that's why he sent them off. Please guys, get out of here. I need a little social distancing <laughs> from you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and maybe part of understanding the good news of the gospel is understanding that Jesus had these human experiences just like we do, and that he, these interruptions, he needed those interruptions to recenter him down into who he really was and, and what he was really there for. So I even think that her presence in his life was like this beautiful interrupting the mundane moment. And so, um, he offers, he asks her for a drink, which is a, is a basically a paradox that it's a, it's a, Ooh, it's a contradiction that shouldn't have happened. And the reason why we know that is because she says right back to him, how is that you, how is it, how is it that you, a Jew ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria, because Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. So, um, here's an all play question. Okay. What had she just said? What does that mean? Okay. What does that mean when she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Now, remember, um, a good question or a good reflection asks someone to reflect on what they just said on the feeling level, on the feeling level. So if we're tempted to say, well, it's obvious what she just said. I mean, Jews don't associate with, with Samaritans. So she's surprised that this Jewish man is inviting her to, to uh, offer him a drink. And on a very logical, cerebral level, that makes no sense. But we already know that. You know what I mean? Like that already makes sense to us. And most of us already aren't the Samaritan woman and we're not really Jesus. So we can't really enter in. Unless we really realize on a feeling level what she's saying is, you and I are utterly different. We cluster around different poles. My people and your people are polarized against each other. That's what the reality is. I'm a woman, you're a man. I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. And we don't share anything. You don't even usually walk through our, our area. We don't share water, we don't share food, we don't share religious practices, and these differences will forever separate us. Now I think maybe we're closer to being in the story. You know what I mean? Like, when was the last time you had an experience? Maybe you didn't even say it out loud, but you read something on Twitter, you heard your crazy uncle or father at around the, the latest dinner table or brunch say something nuts. Um, that you felt like was way out of bounds and you didn't even know how to, how to operate. You got angry because someone said something or did something that was utterly against your values. And you had that feeling, you know, that feeling you get when you feel triggered, you feel angry, you feel opposed, right? That's the experience that the woman of at the well is naming. Now, we don't know if she's feeling that, but she's naming. So now we can get in the story. If you've ever feel, felt, field, if you ever field, if you ever felt like you were uh, clustered around one pole and you come into contact with someone who's clustered around the opposite and opposing pole, um, then there's this, there's this experience, right? 
and it feels ugly. So Jesus responded, I think, with a question and a statement that got her to reflect on what she just said, but at the feeling level. So listen to what he said. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I wonder if that first part of that phrase, like, if you knew the gift of God. Because I think gifts have a way of transcending poles, you know? Gifts have a way of surprising us, of, of allowing us to enter into a delightful kind of experience where now it's not about what you believe and what I believe. Now, like, do you believe in a gift? <laughs> you know, like, thank you for this, these tickets to um, the Broadway musical Hamilton. Now I just need to check and see if I believe in this gift. <laughs> now, that's, that's silly. That's ridiculous. If you believe in the gift. So he, I think Jesus tried to reframe, like, wait a minute. Like, you can say you and I are totally different, but at the same time, here I am and here you are. And I'm offering you something. And if you knew who I was, then you would understand something totally different about me. And the gospel is paradoxical in the sense that anytime you think one plus one equals two, that you figured it out, if you say this prayer or if you belong to this religious group, then you're in one plus one equals two. Um, that would be the, the logical linear way to understand what Jesus might have been talking about. But when you realize, like, here's someone that's utterly and totally different, for real, woman, man, Jew, Samaritan, and Jesus is offering her life, living water, that metaphor, whatever that means, then that would bring her to a dead end of her logical linear thought, and it would invite her to consider something else and have a much more robust conversation, right? And so I see this movement, like, there's first a knowing, a knowing deep in your bones, more than a head knowing, but you know that experience when you see that sunset, when you see those deer, when you experience the, a hug from a friend, and there's that, there's that knowing that there's more in this world than just being polarized against each other. There's more in this world than bad news. There's more on this world than how you did or how you didn't do on your latest test or on your job, that there's a connection at the level of the cellular level brought to us by God that is so transcendent that it is way, way, it, it, it can't be contained in dualistic categories of in versus out, you versus me, Jew versus Samaritan. And um, it, it reminds me of that passage we find way later in uh, the New Testament when, when Paul writes, there is now, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, you know, we're all one in Christ. And this is what, this is the first knowing. So there's first this knowing, if you knew the gift of God. And then there is an asking, okay? Um, then you would have asked him, Jesus says, um, and he would have given you living water. And then there's a receiving. He would have given you living water. So what does it mean 
to enter into a kind of life that rejects the dualistic polarities that we want to put each other in. I am a Democrat. You are a Republican. You are a, a progressive. I am a conservative. I voted for this person. You voted for that person. I did the right thing. You did the wrong thing. To transcend those categories and to start moving toward those deep, deep knowing that there is a love in this universe that's holding us all together. And I think that's why we need these moments where we are taken out of our mundane, ordinary existence, the logical linear mind, do the email, uh, do the laundry, do the next thing, cross off the next thing on the list so that we can dip down into the depths where we can be asked the question of, do you know love at a cellular level, right? My answer to that is probably, I don't know, because I'm too busy trying to get everything done. But I think when you experience those kinds of knowings, not head knowing, but deep, deep soul knowings, that this Samaritan woman was starting, if you read the rest of the story, she's starting to get it, like, oh my goodness. Um, and then there's an asking for, and then there's a receiving. So we have to ask the question, if we want to live that kind of life, especially here in Lent, how do we learn to pay attention to these interruptions when they come? When Jesus sits down at the well, when the woman comes in, when the deer uh, makes the dog bark, uh, when the traffic jam uh, makes us late, when um, the the wife doesn't show home, show home, show up at home from work on time, and you're the husband and you're making the dinner, when the roommate is messy, when the kid is crying too late in the night. Um, how do we learn to pay attention to these interruptions? And how do we learn to stop long enough to sink down beneath the surface over which we are skimming and really pay attention to God who longs to meet us in those depths? Well, again, Jim Finley, this guy that I was telling you about in this podcast, Turning to the Mystics, again, he says, that which is essential never imposes itself, but that which is non-essential is always opposing, imposing itself. So that's the mundane stuff, the emails, all that stuff. It reminds me of the, the, the writer of the Revelation in chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Love waits. Love knocks. Love, love does never barges in. And so Jim Finley um, encourages followers of Christ to develop contemplative practices that help us get in touch with the essential. He says it is essential for us to sort of uh, create these daily rendezvous where we slow down enough so that we can pay attention to the God that longs to meet with us in these deep places. And so, and I love how he defines contemplative practices is this way. And, and, and by the way, a contemplative mystical way of looking at yourself, God, the universe is really a very different way than a logical linear one plus one equals two way. Um, but he says, a contemplative practice, I love this, it's our commitment to any act, which when we're giving ourselves fully to it, we're taken to a deeper place. So that's all he defines it. Any act in which we give ourselves fully. Take a walk, but really pay attention to your breathing, to your breath, to your companion. Have a conversation. Commit to that half an hour by yourself at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day. Um, when you take the Eucharist, um, when you play with your kid, 
when you read a book to yourself, when you have dinner with your roommate, when you experience longing for something you don't yet have. Uh, these are, if you can commit yourself fully to it, and all that means, it doesn't mean doing it perfectly. All that means is, is trying to be present to it with sincerity. That's all it means, with honesty, sincerity. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's praying. But you're not going to just pray, you know, what you should pray. You're going to pray what's honest. You're going to show up with what's real and what is, rather than what you should think or what you should be praying. These are, these are things that help us get in touch with the God that longs to meet us underneath the surface. And if you read the rest of the story, um, actually, before I do that, I want to go through a couple different examples of cont contemplative practice that you could do. So I, I mentioned walk. You could do Lectio Divina. That's just taking a short passage of scripture in the Gospels or the Hebrew scriptures and um, reading it about four different times slowly, but imagining yourself in the story. And um, it's, it's a really a way of slowing down and letting scripture speak to you in a different way. Again, it's conversation where you really listen at the feeling level to what you said and to what people said. Uh, maybe it's silent prayer, just breathing in and out. Maybe it's journaling. Again, maybe it's 30 minutes of solitude at the end of every day or, or at the beginning of the day. But let's go back to the end of this story. Um, and this is even beyond what Mary read earlier. But in verse 39 of John 4, we read that many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. I love that. And many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. So I think, again, I think just in a few words, what, what happened there is we have a story of because one person stopped and let something, some gift, interrupt her life, because one person, Jesus, stopped and let someone, the Samaritan woman, interrupt his life, what we see is a cascading uh, buffet of gifts and the Samaritan woman goes and tells people what they what she has experienced but then they need to know it for themselves not up here but deep in here so first there's a knowing uh, if you knew the gift of God and who I am and then and then there's an asking for it and you see this these people ask Jesus could you stay with us and he does right and that's so vulnerable like can you imagine a group of Samaritans asking a Jewish rabbi, stay with us. What if he says no? He, you know he's going to say no, but he didn't. He stays with them. And then there is a receiving of a gift. They heard for themselves and believed. And this is not meant to be a formula, you know, but it's meant to be the, like the pattern of what it means to enter into a, a, to a contemplative rather than linear logical one plus one equals two journey where you you're, you long to know something at a deeper level than just what skimming across the surface allows you to do. And when you do that, that leads you to ask for something, something that's vulnerable, something that you feel like you've never quite asked before, right? You can engage with God with that, in that vulnerability of asking. And then we learn how to receive, right? Um, so 
my hope for you during this season, however long it is, for sure for Lent, but also in this season where the coronavirus is disrupting the whole world, um, that you would practice some contemplative practices that would allow you to begin to see the interruptions in your life as invitations to meet God in just a little deeper place. So you can know, not up here, but deep in your soul, the love that God has for you and for the rest of the world. Uh, so I hope you can maybe just put a stake in the ground and say, what are the, what is one contemplative practice throughout the rest of Lent that I can give myself fully to? And all God desires is sincerity. A little sincerity goes a long way. <laughs> Um, doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be, you don't get attendance pins for this and all that stuff. Um, but, um, my hope is that you can, you can enter into one contemplative practice with your whole heart. And my hope is then you can meet God where you're at. Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.